Welcome to And Justice for All, the official podcast of Roosevelt University, exploring the relationship between education and justice and the transformative power of inclusive education. Hosted by Roosevelt University President Ali Maletzadeh. When Professor Margaret Rung was a young child, she traveled to Taiwan with her family for her father's Fulbright. Decades later, it all came full circle as she traveled to Taiwan for her own Fulbright. In this week's episode, guest host Professor Andy Trees sits down with Professor Rung to talk about her experience overseas. As a Fulbright scholar in Taiwan, she explored the shifting boundaries between the public and private spheres in America with an emphasis on how diverse Americans negotiated a social contract in a nation devoted to capitalism and democracy. Margaret Rung is a professor of history here at Roosevelt University, where she also directs the Center for New Deal Studies and the History Program. She is a specialist in 20th century political history with a focus on the Roosevelt era and has published widely on topics ranging from the New Deal and Franklin and Eleanor Roosevelt to government workers. In addition to her Fulbright at National Taiwan University in Taipei, Taiwan, she also received one at the University of Latvia in Riga, Latvia in the year 2000. Professor Rong is a Phi Beta Kappa graduate of Oberlin College and holds an MA and PhD from the Johns Hopkins University. In this episode, Andy and Margie discuss her time in Taiwan, from her two-week quarantine upon arrival to some of her favorite local foods. Enjoy their conversation. Margie, great to have you here today on the podcast. So I want to talk to you about Taiwan and your Fulbright. But before we get to that, let's learn a little bit more about Professor Margie Rung. So first of all, I'd like to start. So we actually are, we're almost academic kin because I almost studied under Brian Ballow, who studied under the same professor you studied under with at Johns Hopkins. So we're, we're, we're practically related in intellectual terms. Well, that's like three degrees of separation. So that is, that is, yeah. <laughs> Siblings, definitely. So tell me, okay, you are the head of the Center for New Deal Studies and you write a lot about business. And as Calvin Coolidge famously said, America's business is business. Tell everyone why they should rush to take your classes because of what they will learn about the business of America. So are you referencing my fall class, uh, American Business History? I'm referencing whatever class you're trying to push on the... Uh, well, I'm, just trying, this, I'm trying to give you a spring, chance to tell yourself here. Yeah, this spring you should definitely take the, li- the Lives and Times of Franklin and Eleanor Roosevelt, which is a deep dive into the biographies and historical context in which Franklin and Eleanor Roosevelt lived. And we explore topics ranging from their marriage to disability 
to community in terms of, of relationships. So I think about Eleanor and the community that she built around her and her relationship with uh, Lorena Hickok, which we assume was, was sexual, but I think also suggests, again, the networks that she was building. We also focus in on the issue of growing up in Victorian America among the 1%. And the, yeah, and the kinds of tragedies that befell Eleanor. She was orphaned uh, by the age of 10 and what that, you know, what that meant. So we talk a little bit about what is death uh, like in Victorian America because it was so common. And then you have Franklin, of course, growing up in this totally privileged and very warm and secure environment. So in some ways, the antithesis of Eleanor's experience as a child, although he um, lost his father when he was a teenager. And then Sarah's relationship to Franklin, because when Eleanor married Franklin, she was basically also inviting Sarah into her her home. (laughs) So, you know, it's a variety of topics. But and then, of course, we talk about the Depression and the war and um, Eleanor's work in the United Nations, her work on behalf of civil rights. So lots of topics, very, not not just the Roosevelt's, but I think it's important if students want to understand the the people behind the names on our university. I have to say, this sounds like a really rich course. I would totally take it. I'll have to tell you, maybe I'll, maybe I'll pop in and just make you uncomfortable. Yeah, feel free to, course. well, feel free to co-teach if you'd like. I, I'm Let me ask that. you. So I think a lot of times students think like, oh, Franklin and Eleanor. Yeah, yeah. We know all about them. But I know there are always new discoveries, new interpretations. So can you tell us something about either one of them or both of them that is something that might surprise people who feel like they know Franklin and Eleanor? Well, I think the one thing I would say about them in terms of their relationship is that the the typical view of their marriage was that that after Franklin had his affair in, in 1918, that they were not romantic and they were not really a couple, but they stayed together. And one of the topics that we discuss is their marriage and and what it means and in the again in the context of the period and i would say it was a very in some ways a very forward kind of modern marriage and that i think based on their correspondence and their interactions with one another there was a lot of very deep love there and they were very i think they were very connected on an emotional level not just um, and I, 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 so I, I can't tell you about their physical relationship because neither one of them wrote about it, but I can say that I do think that it was a very successful marriage. So that's one thing that I, as it's kind of generally surprising to people when they, I, I think, read about the Roosevelt's in more in depth. Eleanor packed a pistol. She loved to shoot. Uh, I, I did don't not know that. Did. Yeah, I don't think many people do. It's maybe not something we'd want to brag about today. But yeah, she was. She definitely liked her target shooting, and yeah, had a gun. I'm sure it was legally registered, and she. Yeah, I think it was. She was also, right <laughs> okay, so maybe maybe people don't know this. She was also a terrible driver. Apparently, she had a, quite a few accidents. So. Really. Yeah, she just, I think she probably got distracted easily. (laughs) (laughs) So uh, I've heard you're going to teach 20% of the class in the voice of Eleanor. Can you give us a little voice? I am not going to teach 20% of the class in the voice of Eleanor. It's going to be all the class. 
All right. All right. Students listening to this, I don't know how you can pass this up. All right. One more question. I'm curious about Franklin Eller, that is. Uh, so Franklin, I think, you know, you look at him and clearly this moment of crisis allowed him to do things that people would normally do. But I feel like today when people look at our politics, it seems like no matter how big the crisis, the response to it is so tepid and disappointing. How, what would Franklin tell us? What could we do? What advice could he give us? Or how does he show us? to basically try to tackle some of these challenges in a bolder fashion. I think Franklin loved being president, and I think he understood that he had a unique position to encourage people to be their best selves. And I think he took that very seriously. Anytime he made a speech, a fireside chat, it was always about something substantial. It was always to encourage people to do something positive for the public good. So I'm not sure he would have one piece of advice for President Biden or anyone else who's facing these crises, except that I believe he would say it's important to be front and center and that inspiration is as important as the substantial policies that you're pushing, that the two go hand in hand, that you shouldn't shy away from standing up for what you believe is right. You know, I think about the 1936 speech he made, the Philadelphia Convention, in which he, you know, called out the economic royalists. And he knew that that was going to cost him politically with, with the elites, but he also knew that it was the right thing to do in terms of, you know, focusing on ordinary people who were really desperate at that point in time and encouraging them to keep supporting the New Deal and his administration and obviously to reelect him. Yeah. Nice to see someone still willing to, uh, well, or at least back then, still willing to say things, even though they know that it's actually going to hurt them politically, as opposed to like putting everything to the polls first and be like, well... Well, he was very aware of the polls, and I think he was very aware of public opinion, but he always balanced that off with his own, I think, really strong instinct about and, and moral compass about what was right to do. You know, what, what is right? What should I say here in this particular moment? He always felt that he was serving the people. They put him in office, and he was only there to do their, their will. So, yeah. Maybe someday we'll see something like that again soon. <laughs> yes, one can hope. Well, uh, part of the reason I wanted to have you on today, Margie, is because you were relatively recently in Taiwan on a Fulbright scholarship. And before we talk about what you actually did there this time, I was reading something you wrote, and you actually have a longer connection to Taiwan, which I think people would love to hear about. Yeah, so... Whenever I would meet somebody new in Taiwan this spring, they would always ask me, is this your first time in Taiwan? And I would have the opportunity to say, no, I was here over 50 years ago. So my father had a Fulbright to Taiwan in the 1967-1968 uh, academic year. He's a math professor. And he was affiliated with Tsinghua University in Chinchu, which is now, I think, called National Tsinghua. But we spent nine months in Chinchu and lived in a house on campus and just had an incredible year there. My parents had never been out of the country before. Maybe they had, maybe they had gone across the border at Niagara Falls because they were both from upstate New York. But 
other than that, they had not, <laughs> they had not traveled anywhere. And I, I guarantee you at that point in time, they didn't have to show their passports to get into Canada. <laughs> so they, they traveled to this Asian country, you know, without really knowing anything much about the culture. And they just immersed themselves in it and felt so enveloped with kindnesses and generosity and they traveled all over the island. And then my dad purchased around the world plane tickets for the entire family. And so when we left Taiwan, we traveled, we did an around the world tour. I believe we were on Pan Am, although it might've changed at some point, but my dad, you know, he just has these fantastic um, stories about planning that trip. Anyway, so it was an amazing year. I was not very old. I was four and I attended a, a Chinese speaking, a Mandarin speaking preschool. So I was babbling away in Mandarin and we had a person who worked for us. It's a little embarrassing to talk about that, but um, they did provide us with a cook and he took me to school every day on his bicycle. <laughs> so I, I frequently sat in the kitchen with Mr. Dong and talked to him. And he fed me sugar cookies and homemade <laughs> potato chips. But my, my, yeah, I mean, honestly, my parents, they still talk about that trip. We had tons of slides that they took and we would watch the slideshows, you know, periodically um, when we were young. And so it was, a, it was quite an adventure. And then to learn that I had won this Fulbright to, you know, to go back to Taiwan, my dad was just beside himself. He was so happy. So it was a really, it was kind of an emotional journey for me to, to return. And uh, my daughter and I did take a, a trip to Shinshu early on, took the train down and walked around the town. And I told my mom about walking to the central market. And she's like, oh, I remember going in there. And they would, they yell at her like, American lady, American lady, <laughs> like, you know, trying to sell her something. So she remembered the market that I was in and, and the train station, of course, and we went to the zoo and yeah, it was great. So that's fantastic. Yeah. So before then, obviously you're still totally fluent in Mandarin. Congratulations. But uh, yeah, uh, yeah. Yeah. So I'm curious now, before you can't remember much, I'm sure you remember mainly because of the slides you saw back, you saw as you grew up, but uh, so going back there this time, what was it like? I mean, what was it like being immersed in another culture? Oh, it was fantastic. I mean, I can't tell you. Like, first of all, traveling in a pandemic, I don't recommend, but it was a it was a pretty arduous journey. There was a ton of paperwork involved. And because Taiwan was very, very careful about COVID, the amount of paperwork that I had to fill out was pretty astounding. I've never seen some of that. It was quite impressive in its heft, what you had oh, to yeah. fill out. I have, I have multiple, multiple stories about the paperwork and, but I'm not going to bore you with all that. But anyway, the point is that about form yeah. C, I mean, stacks and stacks of stuff. And, and it was always shifting. That was the problem. So they, they would change the rules and you would need to do this or X, Y, or Z. And, and, so getting there was just a her- Herculean task. And I was so relieved to arrive. And then we went into quarantine. Shall I tell you the story of the airplane trip and, and quarantine? Yeah, hotel? absolutely. 
So we we landed in San Francisco and we were sitting there waiting to board our flight to Taipei and they begin general boarding and then they stop fairly quickly and they announce that the pilot has tested positive for COVID. And therefore, the start of the story. Yeah, we were we were delayed while they looked for another pilot who then had to test oh <laughs> negative. <laughs> so we were delayed like two hours. We get to Taipei and it's all very organized. And it's and again, there's all kinds of procedures that you have to go through at the airport, including getting a SIM card because they're going to track you. This is how they track everybody. Ah, okay. Yeah. So you have to have a SIM card before you leave the airport. And then you are required to take a quarantine taxi to a quarantine hotel and that has been reserved for you. Fulbright took care of all that. So it was lovely. So we had two weeks in a quarantine hotel and then one week of what's called self-health management, where you're reporting every day your temperature, but you're not in quarantine anymore. You cannot ride to public transportation. You have to wear a mask, but you can at least go outside. So I had two hotel reservations. And anyway, at the airport, I set everything up so that they knew where we were going I went out, got the quarantine taxi. They're spraying us down constantly. <laughs> Even the you know the luggage gets sprayed several times. So we get into the quarantine taxi. We get to the hotel in downtown Taipei. And there's some confusion for me about where I'm supposed to check in. And the security guard is like pointing at the sign, which is in Chinese. And I'm like, what? So I open up my folder to call the hotel to find out where do I go to check in. And I look at the, the reservation and I realize that I have gone to the wrong hotel. <laughs> I am not at my quarantine hotel. I am at my self-health management hotel. Oh, my gosh. And here I am in downtown Taipei. The quarantine taxi has left. I have no idea where the other hotel is. And I'm just unglued because I've been traveling for 30 hours. Right. And my daughter is angry because she's tired and she wants to go to the hotel. So I had to call the Fulbright people at nine o'clock on a Friday night and call her at home. You know, I'm like, Oh, help. So she, she had to call a quarantine taxi to come get us. And she's telling us, Stand in, stand out on the sidewalk. Don't talk to anybody. Don't go in any stores. I'm like, I know, I know, I know. I won't interact with anybody. So anyway, we then we arrive at the quarantine hotel, Andy, and I cannot freaking figure out how to get in. The hotel is like cordoned off. And I'm looking for another door. I don't know where. To, and I'm, I'm, you know, again, I'm frazzled. I'm like walking away. I don't like it. Yeah, exhausted. Like, uh, and Lizzie's my daughter is on the sidewalk, like glaring at me. So finally, I see this little teeny sign up next to the door with a doorbell. And I was just like, I cannot believe this, you know. So anyway, we we get into the quarantine hotel. We are sprayed down again, <laughs> and we check in. I thought they were like, well, I don't even need to shower now. I mean, this yeah. Is I mean, at this point, it's almost ten o'clock in the evening, and then they give. That my they they kept our dinners for us. So they gave us this little dinner, and they told my daughter to go upstairs. She runs up to the the room, and um, and I go into my room, and it's like a shoebox, which you know, again, when you're 
going to be there for two weeks. What difference does it make? But there were literally six steps between my desk and the, the bathroom. And so I'm thinking to myself, oh, my daughter is going to just be very unhappy with this tiny space. I had a window, which was really important. Yeah, to see the outside world. Yeah, I mean, to have at least something to look at. So the next day, she and I are FaceTiming or talking, and, and she says to me, how's your window? And I was like, oh, it's like a postage stamp, you know. And she's like, oh, mine spreads across the entire room. <laughs> and I was like, what do you mean? I was like, well, how big is your room? She's like, oh, it's huge, huge. I'm going to put my bed under the window so that I can look out. And I think that they mixed up yes. the reservation. I think they thought she was the adult, you know. Oh, that's so funny. That's but, so funny. Yeah, yeah. So we spent two weeks in quarantine where they fed us three times a day. They put the meals outside your door. And you were never allowed to interact with anybody. You could not cross the threshold. You put your garbage out there, but you couldn't cross the threshold. And um, you had daily check-ins. I got to know my um, Central Epidemic Command Center person who called me every day, Terry, and checked in on me. And daily temperature checks and, you know, the whole nine yards. But they were incredibly kind, just incredibly kind and gracious how is it to spend two weeks by yourself in a hotel room? Well, let me put it this way. I do not think that I would do well in prison. It was, it was hard. It, ah, I, I, I mean, the first week wasn't so bad. And I also got ill. I had a, a terrible allergy attack and I couldn't breathe. And so, of course, they were concerned that I might have COVID. And I didn't get a test, but they did go out to a pharmacy and he's, he's sending me pictures. The hotel staff is sending me pictures of, of medication on the shelf. Should I get this? You pick out. I'm like, yeah, Flonase. That's what I need. Um, so I wasn't feeling well for quite a few, you know, a few days in there in the first week and I was exhausted. So maybe the first four or five days weren't so bad, but then after that, you know, it was sort of like, okay, well, what am I going to do today? So I don't, you didn't follow me on Facebook, but I started posting almost every day. I posted pictures of my tea box. <laughs> so every day was a different flavor and I would post my tea box. Um, I watched the inauguration because of course I was turned upside down in terms of time. So right. I was there when Biden was in. So I stayed, I was like in the middle of the night there, but I watched the inauguration. That was really awesome. I worked on my classes. I talked to, you know, talked to Lizzie, my daughter, talked to family. I mean, you know, but it really, I was so happy when we left the hotel. And I could, and I could also see that the weather was gorgeous. Right. Like and you're stuck was, in this hotel room. Yeah. Like it was so sunny and beautiful. And I was just like, I watched the same uh, intersection every day. There was a dude, a guy who sat across the street on a, a little stool and held court. Oh, but let me just tell one other story before we move on, which is about garbage. So every night or every day, I would hear the sound of an ice cream truck coming down the street, singing this little jingle. And in fact, I was on a Zoom call with um, our friends from Tilburg University and they heard it and they're like, is that an ice cream truck? And I was like, yes, someone's by every day. And it all, there was always an announcement too, but of course it's in Chinese, so I didn't know what they were saying. And the last day that I was there, I heard it and I looked down onto the street. I was up on the fourth floor. I looked down 
and I see a garbage truck. And I was like, wait a minute. That's a garbage truck. That's oh my God, it wasn't an ice cream truck. No, it was the jingle of the garbage truck. So that's that's supposed to remind you to run out and put your garbage out? Yes. Oh, that's So every neighborhood has a designated time that the garbage truck comes by and you must go out with your blue bag. Do not put your garbage into any old bag. You go purchase your blue bags at the 7-Eleven or the grocery store. And the blue bag then goes into the garbage truck. You bring out your your food, leftover food. That goes into a composting bin. You can also bring out recyclables on certain days of the week. But that is how garbage is collected. That's, that's not as exciting as, a, as an ice cream truck. That's a very... <laughs> no, I would not want to buy my ice cream from the garbage people. But I was impressed by the cleanliness of it all because... You know, it was a, it's a fairly clean city. <laughs> All right. So you're finally, after two weeks of this, released from captivity. I'm curious. So I taught in England for a year and I taught the American Revolution when I was there. And it was a really strange experience. And it really taught me a lot about how your perspective on things can be radically different. All these British students were like, yeah, the Amer- they, it wasn't about political ideology for them. They were like, these guys are a bunch of tax cheats and smugglers. Like this revolution's ridiculous, right? It was very, I was like, Wait, what about all the noble ideals, right? I was just out of college. Uh, so it was it was an eye-opening experience. So I'm curious what your teaching experience was like in Taiwan. Yeah, that's such a great question. And I, I agree with you 110% that if you're an American, you need to teach somewhere else besides the U.S. Because you will suddenly discover your narrative. Like, you don't even know that your narrative is shaped by, you know, years of elementary and middle school, high school <laughs> history. Um, but yeah, so I, I, it was fascinating. Absolutely fascinating. I taught two classes, one on the late 19th and early 20th century, and then one on the 1930s. And we actually ended up going into the second world war. They were both very small. So it was, it was nice because it was more of a discussion based course. I mean, I, I did lecture, but they were frequently asking questions as we were moving through the course. And it was pretty fascinating to sort of talk about race and class. I think in particular in the late 19th century course, they don't perceive themselves as living in a particularly diverse society. So when we discussed issues of ethnicity and race, they felt that that was something they didn't necessarily relate to or didn't resonate as much with them. They see themselves as more homogenous. But honestly, as we started to discuss Taiwan's history, because that always came up in class, they started telling me, of course, about all of these different groups of people who had inhabited the island. And I was trying to impress on them, you actually do live in a very diverse community. Those differences may not seem as apparent to you, but they are there. Class two, I think, was was an interesting concept for them. Of course, they have this whole sort of framework of of communist China and the nationalists coming to the island and, and wanting to 
avoid and all costs anything that smacked of communism or socialism. So they embrace the idea of a free market, but they also have a fairly robust social welfare state. And I remember one student in particular talking to me about the, the labor violence in the United States in the late 19th century. So we talked a lot about strikes that were put down by, you know, militias and, and he just said, I, I just can't imagine that kind of force being used against workers. Again, I'm not sure that's always very accurate. There probably are instances where there's, there's violence, but the fact that it's such a consistent issue in late 19th century U.S. and I think was what they were sort of struck by. And then in the in the 1930s class, again, very interesting discussions about the social welfare state. They were very interested in the concept of, of creating this work relief and what that meant. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't know. We, we honestly, the classes went by so fast and they loved the kinds of materials that I brought into class. So I used a lot of film because film is really wonderful when you have sometimes a language barrier. Their English was good, but if you have an image to watch, it really does allow, facilitates discussion, I think, quite a bit. And so I used a lot of film and they loved that. We had a lot of really good discussions about it. The one thing I will say, and my students were absolutely delightful, just totally delightful. They had the they have an incredibly good sense of humor, but I don't always understand it. And so sometimes I'd be showing this film, there'd be something kind of serious on there, and the entire class would crack up. <laughs> and I mean, one time I found out it's because they were playing the Communist International or something in the background, you know, musical background. <laughs> that's so funny. Yeah. I think that's very interesting. You know, that reminds me of Robert Darton's thing where he says, you know, when you're studying something and there's a joke and you don't get the joke, like that's what you should study because it's pointing you to something about that culture that's totally different than your own. Yeah. I would say they're very silly, you know, which I appreciate because I'm silly too, but, but I didn't, I didn't always understand the silliness, you know, <laughs> but they did think I was very funny. So I appreciated that, you know, they did laugh at my jokes, but that sounds I, I, that sounds like a really cool experience. Now, in hearing them ask about these various things, did it highlight how you thought about American history or change the way you saw some of these things when you suddenly see it in a more international context and you're like, oh, that's a, that's very different? It, it did. And I here's what I would say about that. I had a Fulbright 20 years ago in, in Latvia, at the University of Latvia, Riga, again, an unbelievably fantastic experience there. I was there for an entire year. And that experience taught me a lot about how to view World War II. So similar to what you were describing with reference to the American Revolution, not that I completely embraced the, you know, America's or America's the liberator in World right. War II, but, you know, there is this kind of notion that it's democracy against fascism. And clearly, you know, the, the Germans and Nazi Germany needed to be defeated. But the Latvians you know, they, they did not see the war in those terms. They basically saw themselves squished between two awful powers. They were not interested in having the Soviets in there. <laughs> they were not interested in having the Germans. World War II was a tragedy for them, just of epic proportions. There were no winners at all. And they felt abandoned by the United States at the end of the war. So, 
I quickly learned, and it was very difficult to talk about the Holocaust because of course there were perpetrators in Latvia and that was, they see themselves as, as I don't, they see themselves in some degree as victims, but it, because they were, so they don't want to see, they, you know, the right. idea it's hard perpetrators. to put that together with the fact that, oh, we were also, it's not a clear narrative. It's like, it's, yeah. Yeah. it's, it's a very messy narrative. Yeah. And it's a very messy narrative in Taiwan. Yeah. Taiwan was occupied by the Japanese. And so during World War II, they were technically enemies of the United States. There were allied bombing raids over Taiwan. Mm. And I was giving a talk about World War II in memory in the United States. And after I was done, one of the audience members, it was actually the host, said to me, I had an uncle who was killed, great uncle who was killed in, in one of the bombing, allied bombing raids during the war. And yet after China's civil war, when the nationalists came to Taiwan and took over the government, they were very pro-American. Mm. So it's a very, they have a very complicated history with the United States they have a very different, again, narrative of World War II. They do not necessarily see the Japanese as the enemy. They recognize that they were colonizers, but they don't out and out reject that period as one of being particularly horrendous or horrific. It, I think the historiography is changing a little bit, it, it, but up until recently, that's that just wasn't the case. In fact, that period is sort of heralded as the moment at which Taiwan begins to modernize. Mm -hmm. So the Japanese brought in industrialization. They modernized the, the infrastructure of government, you know, modern postal service, those kinds of, of changes were instituted during that period. So yeah, I, as you were saying, it's really important, I think for Americans to, understand that even the most open-minded and you know broadly educated American is not going to have access to those other viewpoints unless they immerse themselves in another culture. And that's what Fulbright is for. Mm -hmm. That's why it's so valuable. You're listening to And Justice For All, the official podcast of Roosevelt University. You said also in the uh, essay you wrote about your Fulbright experience that it, it radically changed your view of Taiwan's history as well. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And as I indicated, part of the issue for me was that I had these wonderful memories of that year there. When you were four, my... not as critically aware. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I was not. I had not read enough books at that point on uh, world history. But my parents were embraced so much by people there. And we made so many close friends who my parents stayed in touch with for years and years that I only had kind of a very positive image of what life was like there. And I, I honestly, it wasn't until I was a young adult that I realized that they were under martial law mm. until the late 1980s. And I, I just didn't know that. Like I didn't see that. 
And in fact, when I talked to my dad about it recently, he told me that he had colleagues who would speak to him because they felt like it was safe and they could maybe say things to my dad that they couldn't say to other people, their opinions. So this whole period of martial law and the period under Chiang Kai-shek and his son, Shang Jing Kuo, is known as the white terror now because of the repression that people felt and the degree to which the um, government, you know, suppressed free speech and any kind of dissent. And I just didn't have any idea about the extent to which that was traumatic for people and difficult, a very difficult history. And I, I mentioned that one of the first places I went after I got out of quarantine was the 228 Peace Park. Mm-hmm. And I read about it and I I realized, like, I remember actually reading through the narrative and it said, you know, in 1947, there was this confrontation between a woman who was selling contraband cigarettes and the police and they beat her up. And it was simmering, there was simmering tension between the population and the Chinese government because of restrictions they were placing on people in the post-war period and the economy was very bad. So it was very difficult for people to earn a living. And so a spontaneous protest emerged mm-hmm. after this woman was beaten up and they started and it grew like there were a couple of days of it. And the crackdown by the nationalist government was, or the Chinese government at that time was just immediate and incredibly disproportional. So, and this is where I was like, my eyes popped out. 28,000 people were killed within a matter of months. And many of them were low level functionaries in in different towns and, and counties, you know, mayors and people who were serving in government positions and intellectuals. And I thought, oh my gosh, this, and this laid buried during that entire martial law period. Right, of course, right? They wouldn't publicize that. No, no. And it wasn't until the democracy movements of the 80s and early 90s that, you know, people actually started to talk about it and, you know, talk about, again, trauma, just Mm. deep trauma in that society. And then there were a couple of sensational cases in the late 70s and early 80s of government-sponsored assassinations, basically, of dissenters uh, that were really disturbing, including one of a professor who got his PhD in, um, well, he got his PhD in the United States. He had his undergraduate degree at National Taiwan University, where I taught. And he went to Michigan. And while he was there for his PhD, and while he was there, he reported on what were called professional students. These were people sent over by Taiwan to kind of spy on other Chinese students or other Taiwanese students who were there. And anyway, so he got himself into some trouble with the government. He got on their radar and he was, he was an activist and he eventually got a job at Carnegie Mellon And then he decided it was his parents told him it was safe to come back. He came back to Taiwan for a vacation. He was with his wife and child, and then they wouldn't let him leave when it was time to go. 
and he was picked up twice for questioning and the second time didn't come home. And his body was found on the campus of National Taiwan University. And he had been, well, they said he jumped. They said it was a suicide, but he had been dropped from a, a you know, a fire escape, basically, up a, a wall in front of the library. I mean, it was just terrible. But he had I clearly, I think, he died in custody. And then they just dropped his body there. And for years and years and years, the family tried to get some kind of recognition and memorial put up. And it was only like right after I got there in February of 2021 that they finally did put something there because the university is a public institution. And these were, you know, this was the Taiwanese police right. that did this. And it wasn't, you know, it was a 19, like 1980, So it was like not that long ago when people are still alive. So the, those kinds of events are still there. I had a lot of long conversations with my colleague, Professor Young Susian and his wife, Jolene, and they talked a lot about growing up in martial law and, you know, the, the way that public schools had, each public school had a military advisor. Really? Oh, yeah. And to keep an eye yeah. on everything. Yeah. And your hair had to be, Jolene would tell me about her hair had to be cut at, you know, a certain length certain number of inches below the ear, above the shoulder. It's very rigid, you know. Anyway. How does it feel now? I mean, does it feel like it's a well-functioning democracy? People can really express themselves. Is there a lot of anxiety about China? Like, what, what, what's it feel like there politically now? It, it is amazing, Andy, to sort of think about and, and view the democracy because I think because it was so hard fought for and it was so recent that they transitioned to democracy, it's really important for them to perform democracy. And they remind themselves constantly about the value of civic activism, civic participation, voting, free speech. And I, I would go to these memorial sites, and one of them was Liberty Square, which is, was created as a, a memorial to Chiang Kai-shek. So one whole side of it is a big, huge palatial building with a statue of Chiang Kai-shek, this enormous thing, which apparently is modeled on the Lincoln Memorial. <laughs> so, so there's Chiang Kai-shek sitting in his chair, looking out over the square, you know, <laughs> which, I mean, again, in an authoritarian state, you'd say, okay, this is where the, the um, military parades. And then there are two cultural buildings on the square. One is a theater, and I think one is for music. And then there's a, an archway on the other end that's kind of a memorial to victories and, and soldiers. Anyway, it's been transformed into Liberty Square, and there's this beautiful write-up about what democracy means and why that space is now transitioning to something else. So I'd say there's just a constant reflection, like fascinating reflection about human rights, about democracy. So, yes, I would say it's a very strong democracy at the moment. A high percentage of people participate in voting. You know, they pay attention to politics. But I would also say that everything there is really framed by their relationship to China. And the politics are really about that, those cross-strait relations. So the old nationalist party, the Kuomintang, the KMT, 
would like closer ties to China. And the DPP, the Democratic Progressive Party, is more inclined to distance themselves from China, but they are not willing to declare independence because that could be disastrous. Mm -hmm. And so they walk a fine line. And then there are a whole host of other parties, some of which are pro-independence, some are you know, pro-environment, they're kind of smaller, but they are also in the legislature. So it's very complicated, but it is very much about what is going to transpire with China. Mm-hmm. What is the current relationship? What what could be the issues in, in front of them? And it's very hard, I think, for people there because they they live in a constant state of anxiety about that. And the recent proclamations by President Xi of China have been very, very unnerving. And then, of course, the intrusions of military aircraft into China, to Taiwan's airspace, like daily, you know, has been very intimidating, intended to be. Yeah. So there's a lot of concern, a lot of trepidation about the next, you know, five to 10 years and what might happen. And I, I have a hard time actually really thinking about it because I just, I can't, I just can't go there in terms of like what would happen if, if Taiwan was attacked, because now I, you know, I have this like strong connection to people there, my students, you know, and I think they, they want to, you know, they want to live a life where they, they participate in making decisions about what that life looks like. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I don't know if I'm explaining that very well, but no, I think I it, it makes sense, and I'm sure that shadows everything there in a way that's that's kind does. of scary and very unpredictable at this point in time. It reminded me a lot of again of Latvia. What what do you do when you are a small country and you're right. sitting on the border of some behemoth country that wants to gobble you up at any particular moment and can has the capability to do that? Right. So t- that's why Taiwan is very very cognizant of what is happening in the United States, their relationship to the U.S. Japan has become a very strong ally of Taiwan. They work together very closely. So that's been interesting. Yeah, it's pretty, yeah, the politics are fascinating, but it's also unnerving, I think, for people who live there. And obviously even for, you know, those of us watching from outside. And then there's a kind of very complicated relationship to Chiang Kai-shek in this period of white terror because the KMT is still a viable party. It's a legitimate party. Right. And And like you were saying, I'm sure there are many people who are involved on the bad side of that who are still around, probably still active politically in some way. I mean, it's so there's- Oh, absolutely. We had a fascinating, we had this fascinating panel on, it was on the future of American democracy, but we had a, a person on the panel who was an activist and an academic he was very active in the 1990s in the democracy movement. And he was talking about Chiang Kai-shek statues and sort of, you know, there are people who look at those and, and for them, this was a period of stability and security and, you know, their families did quite well, or they don't, they don't look back on it with the same kind of fear and, and distaste that other people do. So that brings me to this <laughs> The famous Shanghai Shek statue graveyard, as I call it, 
It's actually the Shanghai Shek Memorial Sculpture Park. But they had to, you know, they have had this committee, basically, to look at these issues and to think about how you build a democratic culture and what do you do with memorials and so forth. And they decided they would start to decommission if the if these organizations wanted to decommission the, the thousands of busts and sculptures and statues of Shanghai Shek that littered the island. I mean, he was everywhere, everywhere. And so public buildings, schools, you know, all kinds of places could send their statue to this park and it would be put up by a landscape architect. And it happens to be a, a land that was owned by Chiang Kai-shek and his mausoleum is there. So the man is actually buried nearby and we visited that too. So when you go, you see 150 to 200 of these statues oh in this expanse of grass. And the architect, brilliant, has put them up in various ways. So, so he created all these circles so that the statues, and there's usually one in the middle. So they're like talking to one another. Oh my gosh. And there's, you know, there's different, different forms, you know, so there's like him sitting down, there's him, you know, holding the constitution, there's him, you know, and there's also actually um, Sun Yat-sen uh, busts and statues there too. So it's not just Chiang Kai-shek. So sometimes, you know, it's Sun Yat-sen sitting down and talking to the other statues of his, I don't know. It's very, it's just incredibly interesting, fascinating. I went with Sushan and Jolene one day and it was, it was actually the day before the level three restrictions went into place for COVID. So it was like our last hurrah out in the, the open and uh, we spent quite a while just visiting each of the statues. And there were plaques that indicated where the statue had been. So we found the one that was actually at National Taiwan University. And then there were some that were just ginormous, huge, you know, things. And then we walked to the mausoleum and we couldn't, we couldn't actually get up to see the body because apparently someone tried to rush it. I don't know whether it was a good thing or a bad thing whether they were trying to do some damage or whether they wanted to hug him. I don't know. Yeah. It was adulation or, or, you know, just repulsion. I'm not sure which, but anyway, so we had to stand back. We couldn't really see into the, um, the space, but he's buried there. And apparently the KMT, the party faithful have to make a pilgrimage there every year to the body. Yeah. To prove their loyalty. Yeah, I mean, the sad thing is that the man is not buried because he wants he wanted to be buried in China. And obviously, for obvious reasons, he cannot be sent back. <laughs> so, the, so at some point, the government decided, let's just bury him. You know, he needs to just be buried in Taiwan. And the family said, no, they didn't want that. So he's still above ground in this mausoleum. Yeah, still waiting. Waiting to go back home. Exactly. It's just just body hanging out, (laughs) waiting for its final resting place someday. Oh, I yeah, okay. Well, okay, so once you were, I mean, when you had free time and you could get away from teaching, why not? What kind of things did you do in Taiwan? What were some of your favorite memories? What was the food like? Oh, gosh. 
Yeah, food. You cannot talk about Taiwan without talking about food. The food is incredible. Absolutely incredible. It's First of all, it's everywhere. And it's good. And it's cheap. So there are tons and tons of vendors. And this was one thing that really struck me, which I did talk about with my students. And that is that Taiwan is still a country of many, many entrepreneurs, like small family owned businesses everywhere. It's pretty astounding. You know, it makes you realize like how much the United States has, has engaged in consolidation. So there are hundreds of these places in every neighborhood. And there are also the famous night markets, which some places are called night markets, but they're not maybe technically that. But there are places where food vendors and sometimes other people selling other um, goods come and usually open in the evening. But people flock to these places and you can, you know, you can find all manner of food. There's a heavy Japanese influence on um, Taiwanese cuisine, but you can also get Korean, Thai, and then just amazing Chinese food. And of course, bubble tea. Bubble tea. Oh my goodness. I drank so much bubble tea. (laughs) I'm mostly milk tea, but I would pedal out. I, you know, they're a big bike culture and I would pedal to this milk tea place it's especially during um the lockdown well it wasn't a lockdown but during the restrictions i would always pedal over there because they had oh my gosh it was so good they had um it was all soy based and so if you're lactose intolerant you know thumbs up with that but it was like tea and then a huge frothy milk on the top and oh my god and all kinds of flavors dragon fruit and i would get i would get my daughter a different flavor every time I love those exotic fruit flavors you can't get here, right? Like, you know, things like passion oh. fruit or whatever that you never oh. see in America. And it's so good. Oh, my gosh. The fruit in Taiwan is to die for because they grow it. It's oh. a tropical climate. And so it's all very fresh. And I I brought home all kinds of lychee nuts. Oh, oh my goodness. I was eating them by the ton. And... Yeah, but dumplings and all manner of noodles, you know, anything you want is available. And as I said, inexpensive. And I, what I learned is that many, many Taiwanese do not have full kitchens because they don't cook. They just eat out all the time. It's, there's so many options and they're so inexpensive that people are like, why would I ever cook? Yeah. And I, I just had two burners, you know, and so I did cook a little bit because sometimes you just don't feel like going out. But once, once the restrictions went into place and it was hot, I was just like, forget that. And I just, I just brought food home pretty much every day. And I always tried again to make myself feel better because this restrictions were in place and we, our movement was restricted. I I said to my, I'm going to try like a different place every night. And I had a list of places too, that I wanted to go. So sometimes I'd bike out and adventure out somewhere else, but yeah, it was really, the food was just, ah, my gosh. Yeah. We had, and we had some wonderful meals, like communal meals. After my talks, I gave a lot of talks. My friends, Susanne and, and Jolene took Lizzie and I up into the mountains one night. We were supposed to be up there so that we could overlook Taipei in the, at night. See the lions. And it was pouring rain. I mean, like pouring and, and kind of foggy up in the mountains. 
So we finally found the restaurant, took a while, but, and we sat out like in a, in an enclosed outside place. We were the only ones in the restaurant. <laughs> no other fool would be out that night, but we had so much fun and all of the food was tea infused. Wow. So we had these, like, there were these buns that were all different colors. So one was like a green tea. And I mean, it they were amazing. Yeah, I ate a lot, but I didn't gain a whole lot of weight because A, it's not really fattening food, and B, it's so hot there that I just sweat it all off. It's not deep dish pizza? That's not with extra cheese? Well, they do, they do love their fried food, and that's where my daughter was like in seventh heaven because she also loves fried food. So there was a decent amount of fried food, but I'm not a big fried food eater, so I, I tended to eat other things. And eggs. We had eggs three times a day in quarantine. Really? Yeah, there was always an egg with our in our breakfast in our That's lunch. Like hard egg. What are we talking about here? Well, it depends. Okay, it could be. Okay. A, it's called a, There's called these things called century eggs. They're prepared different ways. Sometimes fried. Yeah, scrambled. I don't know. They just they're incorporated into everything. Okay. And, so and you see these big egg trucks like going by with you. You know. Did they, did, they have, did they have their own music too? Was there an egg truck music? There was no egg truck music, but I did ask Susanne one time. I was like, where are all the chickens? <laughs> I mean, the country must have millions of chickens because they consume so many eggs. That's so funny. It's 24 million people. You know, you figure they're eating, what, three eggs a day? Like, that's a lot of that's eggs. a lot of eggs. Yeah. Okay, so uh, the milk bubble tea sounds like one of your favorites. I'll let you pick two other favorite dishes to take mm. on your desert island when you're stranded there. Oh, well, they? one is very easy. Okay. But I, I don't know if I can describe it very well. I was walking down the street one day and I had not eaten. And I was kind of on the fence over whether I was going to stop. But all of a sudden I smelled something. <laughs> and I was just like, oh my gosh, that smells so good. And I look over and there are these barrels and they've got tops on them, like wood barrels. And it's clearly something that's been smoked or barbecued or something. But anyway, I look at the sign. And again, I because I can't read, I'm like completely right. you know, lost most of the time. You're, you're guessing at what you're going to be getting. Yeah, but I saw the picture and I was like, okay, that looks good. So it was like consistency like of a biscuit. But inside was this curried meat Ooh. oh my gosh andy i it was during again during level three restrictions and you're not supposed to take your mask off even outside so i took my little biscuit chicken biscuit and i went next to a pillar and i surreptitiously took my mask off and i'm like eating this thing and it's just oozing out this like juice because it's so succulent and it's just delicious Oh my gosh. I still dream about them. So I made several trips down to that vendor. <laughs> she was at the other end of our street um, during the restrictions because I loved those so much. Um, second thing, gosh, there's so many. I, you know, I almost think I have to go with the duck because oh, okay. you don't get to eat duck as, uh, very much here. Like, was this like, what gave me the preparation? Was this the classic Chinese duck or what are we talking about? Well, so one night as a treat, I took Sisian and Jolene to a duck dinner because they were so wonderful with me. And 
we went and I filmed Jolene because I didn't know how to eat it. So she, she showed us, you get it in different forms. So you just, one one whole platter. First they bring the duck out and you get to kind of say goodbye to it. I mean, it's not live, but you get to thank it for its service. For service. <laughs> yeah. Thank you for giving your life for, so that I may enjoy this meal. Stuff my face. Yeah. And and then they, they take it back into the kitchen and cut it up into various ways. So one um, platter is the meat, and you put it into a, a little pancake. Well, oh, first yeah, you, yeah. you I, I should say, first you take a scallion and you smother the pancake sauce. with the sauce. Yeah. yeah. And then you put the duck on it and wrap it up and eat it like a little tortilla or a sandwich. But they also had duck on the bone, and then there was a soup. And Susian really liked soup, so he had that. Oh, my gosh, that was another thing. I have one more that I have to tell you. It was a rice dish that was wrapped in a leaf. And I, I don't know, it might have been a banana leaf. I'm not sure. But it's the meal that you eat during the Dragon Festival. So one night after a conference, we went out to a, a restaurant and they had them they have this rice dish and it's, you know, it's rice with meat and other vegetables, but it's very glutinous. It kind of sticks together. That was really, I love rice. So that was And then there was the, it's like a tempura shrimp at another meal that was on like a stick. It was like a lollipop. That was, I don't know. I could go on and on. That sounds incredible. Yeah. So, Beyond the food, which sounds like it was quite memorable, what was your kind of favorite place to visit or favorite experience while you were over there? Oh my gosh. I, I don't know that I have a favorite. I mean, the visit to the sculpture park was pretty incredible. I guess one I would say, so after the sculpture park, Jolene had Susan drive us to another part of tai, Taiwan, sort of on the other side of Taipei. So we could visit this old kind of mining area. There's an old railroad that goes through there. But one of the traditions is a flaming lantern tradition. So they they brought me to this little town. And again, because this was the day before restrictions were going into place, people were already staying home. So there really wasn't anybody there. And you're given paper like quite large paper and paintbrush, you know, and you paint each side of an, of a lantern. It's four sided. And then you stand over the railroad tracks and you, you paint on it like blessings. And then, so I was painting on about, you know, blessings for good health, ironically, and other, you know, sort of peace and those, those kinds of things. And so Susanne and I stood opposite one another over the railroad tracks, and then they light a flame under the lantern, and you hold it up and let it go, and it goes into the sky. Um, It was very cool. It was was just a really neat moment, and I was glad to share it with them. So that that was wonderful. I don't know. We went to... We went to all kinds of sites together. And even during the restrictions, Jolene drove me all all over the mountains. <laughs> we got lost many times. And I'm telling you, the mountain road driving is not easy. Terrifying. Oh, my God. 
Let me just say that the convex mirror is all that stands between you and certain death on those roads. I mean, honestly, it's like you're doing these hairpin and they're barely two lanes, like maybe one and a half. So yeah, that was, and so we saw spectacular views of the ocean, the Pacific Ocean. I was able to go to Ponghu, which is an island in the Taiwan Strait, it's part of Taiwan, and spent an incredible three days there being feted by the local people. Uh, that was for a conference that Fulbright was involved in. And they took a sightseeing. We went to an Aboriginal village and to and a tree that was like 300 years old, a banyan tree that was old growth, you know, all right in front of a temple. I loved the temples. I saw many, many of those. Yeah, I don't know. I can't really pick out a single. A That's single right. It sounds like it was uh, too great an experience to uh, just pick one thing. Yeah. Lizzie and I went up on the gondolas into the T Mountains. Um, right. That was soon after we got there. That's the thing to do. Okay. And that was, that was really fun. It took like 30 minutes and those things like move. Um, <laughs> so not for the faint of heart. That sounds incredible. Yeah. Yeah. Margie, thanks so much for coming on the podcast today. Although we're past the holiday and the new year, I can wish everyone a happy Chinese lunar new year. Uh, thanks again. It was a pleasure hearing you talk about your experiences there. Yeah. Thanks. Thanks for listening. And Justice for All is produced by Roosevelt University and is available at roosevelt.edu or anywhere you get your podcasts. The music for And Justice for All is written and produced by Jesse Case. Thanks for listening.